0: morning. So I want you to kind of think uh, as we get started this morning about an example. Uh, Example is if you've ever experienced a time in your life where you kind of had a way of doing things, right? Maybe it's in school, maybe it's at work, maybe it's with your family, uh, a kind of pattern of how things work, and then one day this pattern and this way you do things all of a sudden stops working right? And you don't change, and your way of doing things doesn't change, but it doesn't work anymore. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so it's, it's kind of like this. <laughs> it's kind of like this. It, it would be like if you are a parent, and you have a way of relating to your children, and they think you're full of wisdom, and they know you're full of knowledge, and they will hang on your every word, and they follow your example, and then they become a teenager, right? Your philosophy of parenting has not changed. But what used to work and make you one who was full of wisdom now just means you're uncool. Things change around you. Or maybe you're somebody who has gotten into a pattern of exercising, right? Working out and you kind of needed some encouragement, you needed a community to do it with because it was hard to have the discipline to do it by yourself and you worked out a routine and you found some people and all of a sudden you were kind of going to the gym at the right time and you were exercising, you're feeling good because you found folks who are not insane about working out but they encourage you in it and it just feels really good. And then all of a sudden, as things are going well, your work schedule changes. You didn't change, your desires didn't change, but what used to work doesn't work anymore, right? You aren't in control of it, but it just happens. Or uh, you work in a business where this happens, and this happens to businesses a lot. There's a a great story that's been written about um, an example of this, the Eastman Kodak Company. For over 100 years, if you took a, a photograph uh, Kodak company had developed a way of developing the films because we used to not have them on a computer screen. We used to like hold them and on a piece of paper. And they would be the paper and the development process was all developed by Kodak. And for a hundred years, this company and its products dominated the industry of photography, right? We even coined a phrase by it uh, a Kodak moment. Even you guys who have never heard of Kodak as a company, you've probably heard of a Kodak moment, right? And it's rare that a company is so ingrained in our culture that it becomes a part of the language, right? Google's done that, but very, very few companies uh, actually become part of our lingo. But Kodak had done that with Kodak Moments. But when digital photography came about, Kodak looked at it and was like, yeah, we think that's a passing fad. We don't think that's going to be a big deal. And after 100 years of dominating this field, because the world around them changed and they weren't willing to change and didn't see the need to change, they have become basically obsolete. People don't know them. They know the phrase, "a Kodak Moment, but the company has become uh, you know, v- almost irrelevant in a very short amount of time. They didn't change their business philosophy. They didn't change their products. They had a great way that for over 100 years had worked really, really well. But all of a sudden, the world around them changed, and what they did didn't work any longer. Do you know those moments? You know those moments in your personal life or in your business or or, or, or time where something like that happens? The world around you changes, and what used to work doesn't work anymore. In my own life, when I think about this, I remember a time when right after college, I was living in Japan for two years and teaching English. And the way that it worked was in my two years there, my first year I was in a little village, a fishing village on the Sea of Japan called Maruoka. And Maruoka was um, this little village and I was the only Westerner living in my village at the time, which made you kind of a a hybrid of like a mascot and a celebrity uh, in the village. You kind of walk around and people would come up and like, Yank your leg hair and then run away, and like all this kind of fun stuff that would happen. And, um, but it was great. I loved it. And I taught teenagers there, taught junior high school, taught at Maraoka Junior High School. And, uh, and it was great. And I loved it. Now, what I learned was that I also was going to be once or twice a month leaving the junior high school and going and being kind of a guest teacher at the local high school, right? So I was teaching 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th graders, right? And And just as sometimes happens in this culture. Teenagers in that culture kind of operated the same way, right, which is that, and you learn, you learn a way of doing this. You walked into the classroom, and their job was to radiate how disinterested they were in whatever you were teaching or whatever they're learning. So that meant they were like slouching in their desk, but by being the one Westerner and walking in, I was kind of unique and I was was kind of interesting, but they didn't want to show it. Right? And so they would kind of lounge in their their desks and look at you. But the lessons worked to bring about discussion. All right? That's what the job was. So we would have an hour for class, and the lesson would take 30 or 35 minutes, and the rest of it was designed for the kids to kind of talk to you and interact with you and ask you questions. And after the lesson, they had kind of warmed up, and they had taken enough English through the years in high school, uh, in junior high school and high school, that they could ask basic questions. You had a teacher there to help translate, and it would turn into these awesome discussions, because almost everything they thought about America, they learned from the movies which is dangerous. So they're like, so do you dodge bullets every day on your street? You're like, no, I don't do that. And they're like, yeah, in the movies there's a shootout every day uh, in the streets, and that happens. You're like, no, it doesn't. it's not how it really works. And, and so they would ask you questions, and you just kind of talk, right? And all of a sudden, because the discussion was good, the class would end. So I developed this rhythm, this pattern, this discipline of how you teach. You go in, teach a little bit, start asking questions about movies or all this other stuff, and you'd have a great discussion, and class would end. Did that for a year. Worked really well. Great discipline, great philosophy of teaching, or at least it entertained people for an hour. But also during the first year, I met a lovely young lady from Wales who was also teaching on our program, and she was teaching English and This is not a creepy statement. We're married now. Um, And we uh, uh, moved to, uh, I moved to a little village that was next to where Beth was because we lived kind of further away from each other. So I transferred from the town of Maraoka to the town of Mikata, Now, Mikata was the neighboring village next to Beth's village, and I was teaching in the junior high school there. And again, I was the only Westerner in this little town, too. But I kind of knew how that worked now, right? I had a way of dealing with it. I had a way of doing it. I had a way of going into the classroom. It was the teenagers. They're still slouching in their desk. I can kind of walk in, and we could work, and then we could talk and talk about America and stuff, right? It was great. But it's always important to read the fine print in any contract that you sign. It's a good lesson, boys and girls. Don't sign anything without reading the fine print. Because the fine print in the contract said that while I taught at Mikata Junior High School, once or twice a month, I didn't go teach in the local high school. I would go teach kindergarten. (laughs) I don't know if you're aware of this. Five-year-olds are different from 17-year-olds. They, they, uh, they were different in their English learning. They had, most of them had never taken English before. They were different in kind of everything. You'd walk in the class. And they weren't slouching their desks. They were moving constantly. They're constantly doing this. They're constantly wiggling. They're constantly moving around. And you're like, why are you wiggling? Why are you moving? Why are you kind of dancing in your seat? And they're like, I'm not doing it. I'm just kind of like doing this. And then… <laughs> It's like, okay. And then we would talk the lesson, and, and they couldn't um, understand very much. And so the 30-minute lesson would take like 20 minutes. And then you get to the end of that, and that was then the question and answer time, right? Now, that's when I'm supposed to answer questions about American culture and everything else. But these kids are five, right? And so, thankfully, they hadn't seen a lot of the movies that the other kids were asking about. And they didn't know a lot of stuff, and they didn't know a lot of English. And so they would look at you, and, and there'd just be this silence as they're kind of grooving in their seats. And then they would go... Um, do you like snow? (laughs) Like, yeah. I like snow. And they're like, okay, (laughs) That's good. And then it's just silence again. And then you kind of sit there, and crickets are chirping, and they're like, could, and then a kid raises his hand, like, can I touch your hair? (laughs) Because they had never seen like curlier, lighter hair. And this kid would come up, and he would like touch his hair, and everyone would giggle, and he'd run back to his seat, and then silence again. And all of a sudden, there's no more questions, and there's like 20 minutes left in class. And so the teacher looks at me and goes, so um, uh, and say, um, what do you want to teach us now? Like, I, I don't, I don't, I've used all my, that's everything I know right there. Like I don't, I, don't, I don't have any more things now. And she was like, well, she was trying to like help, and she goes, so why don't you teach us a game? So my idea was to teach them Duck, Duck, Goose that was the first game that came to mind. Now, you all are smarter than I am, so you probably could have done this, but teaching five-year-olds that don't speak your language, 35-year-olds that don't speak your language, duck, duck, goose, did not go well, okay? Like, at the end of class, half the class is just running around the room, like, tagging and touching. They didn't understand any of it means. Um, one of them had figured out that I was talking about a duck which went quack. That, that, that part we had, we had established. It just didn't work. It was the most stressful day, and I'm like, I know how this works. I've got my rhythm. I've got my way of teaching, and it doesn't work anymore. So that night, Beth came over to my apartment for dinner, and we were talking, and I said, do you, are you aware of the fact that these lessons don't take the full amount of time? Like, it, 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 and she goes, yeah, yeah, they don't, and, and that's like the best part is when you kind of get to the end, and you just have that free time. She goes, I love it. And I'm like, really? Well, tell me what you love about it. Like, what do you do? And she goes, Well, normally what I'll do is we'll just turn on some rock and roll music and we'll just dance around the room for 20 minutes. Now, that might be a comforting thought to some of you. (laughs) Some of you might be like Beth going, Oh, yeah, that'd be fun to just dance in a room for 20 minutes. Here's the thing I don't dance. And I don't mean in some like crazy conservative Christian kind of way. I don't dance. Dancing's biblical. It's a good thing. I'm saying I have no rhythm, okay? I don't dance. We went earlier this summer with our covenant group to the Broken Spoke when our girls were in summer camp because people were like, you need a full Austin experience, and you're going to go, and you're going to learn a two-step. We got like a song and a half in, and Beth made me go sit down. She was like, first off, you're going to cause a fight with someone because you keep bumping into everybody else on the dance floor, and second off, you keep stepping on my feet. You need to go sit over there and just don't stand up and move anymore because you're a danger out here. I don't dance, all right? My point in that is that I had to figure out how to do something new that had worked for me for a long time. Not because I had changed, not because of philosophy of teaching had changed, but because the world around me had changed, and, and you can't just stay idle or stay still. I want all of you to know something. We are in an important time here at Covenant. You are in an important time in your life as you relate to this community, every single one of you. And the reason for that is, is that we are kind of in this mode where our school year is about to start, our program year is about to start, summer vacations are kind of winding down, uh, travel schedules to beat the Austin heat is going away, and you may be in a pattern of kind of making plans for the upcoming year, right? Kind of organizing stuff, getting ready, sort of setting goals, seeing what the calendar is gonna look like, how everything's gonna work, uh, what vacations you wanna take, when you wanna go see family, how that's all gonna function. This is kind of one of those times when we are building and creating and organizing, and that's good, but what I want you to know is that I can promise you this year we'll have things happen that right now you have no idea that they're going to take place. The things, no matter how in control and organized you are, there will be things that you have no idea are coming that are going to rock your world this year. And no amount of prepping and detailing and calendaring is going to get you ready for what that is. And some of those things, not all of them, but some of them, God is going to be the author of it. Craig Barnes is the president of Princeton Seminary, wrote a great book called When God Interrupts. God is going to interrupt your life this year. I can promise you it's going to happen in small ways and in big ways. And the question is, how are we going to respond? Because it will happen it will take place. How do we respond? How do we prepare ourselves for the things that we can't be prepared for? Because if we're not, we're going to miss something because the reason God messes with our world and the reason God doesn't just want our lives on cruise control is not to make things hard for us, but it's to rescue us. It's because when you and I have our rhythms and our patterns and our disciplines and the way things work and everything's organized and everything makes sense, we create naturally a really small world a really small, organized, controlled world and God's desire is for us to live an adventure. God's desire is to to rattle our cages and to break that up so that we can be the sent kingdom people that he called us to be. God will interrupt your world this year and whether you see it and are able to embrace it and learn from it or not comes down to a couple of very simple principles that I want us to talk about today. The Scripture passage before us that we're going to look at up here as we continue our sent series uh, talks about that, gives an example of that. It's from Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 6, and this is what it says. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come opposite Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them." I'd like to keep this passage up on the Scripture for the next few minutes because we're going to do a little interactive Bible study in just a second, so we're going to need this to to stay up there. But but what's important about this is that just like you and I do, Paul had organized his life really well. Paul had a pattern that was successful, it worked for him, and it was in line with his calling. And here's, uh, in the words here, you're going to see what that pattern is, but it's also evident in the previous chapters of Acts. Paul was a convert to Christianity. We saw that in in Acts chapter 9. Uh, He encounters Jesus as a Pharisee who's persecuting the early church. He encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. It knocks him off of his horse. It it reorients his life. And afterwards, Paul spends a little bit of time learning about his new faith and being taught and trained in his new faith. But just like we've said in this series is true for every single one of us here, Paul was sent by God with a mission. God created you not just to have an ordered, disciplined, controlled, orderly life. God has created us to live with purpose, a divine purpose that we are called to be a part of that sends us out and gives us purpose and joy every day, every single day. And part of Paul's unique call was he was called to travel from town to town and city to city and be an evangelist and to to plant churches, to plant new, brand new Christian communities, And he did that, but just like you and I, he developed a system. He developed a pattern. He had a way of doing it. Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisee meaning that he was someone who was a leader in the Jewish faith. And so what Paul would do is he would travel into certain towns, and the place he would go was the synagogue because it's the place he knew. It was the culture that he knew. It was the religion that he understood. And he would talk, teach there about the Old Testament prophecies uh, and prophets that he had known so well and how Jesus was the fulfillment of those. But he would also travel in a very certain, specific region of the world. Paul was from the city of Tarshish. Tarshish is a city that is in modern-day Turkey. Paul was was Turkish in in his origins. And the cities that we've seen Paul going to in the book of Acts up till now, including the towns and cities up here, are all in modern-day Turkey. Paul was traveling in a very small circle, going from town to town and village to village in these places that he understood really well. He knew the culture. He knew probably the language. He knew the traditions. He knew the holidays. He knew how things work. And he'd go to the synagogue where he knew the religion. Paul had developed a system, right? He'd go into a new town, and he'd follow a system. And he'd go into a new town, and he'd follow a system. And it worked. It was working great. And then all of a sudden in this passage, he's ready to go through to the next towns in Phrygia and Galatia. And it says twice in these five verses that the Spirit of Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, forbids him from doing it. Now this is a disorienting time. Because Paul would be going, hey, I kind of got this and it works and we're seeing good fruit. There's churches springing up. There's people coming to faith. Why are you messing with this? And what do you think it means when it says that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit forbade him from doing this? I don't know. what. I mean, it's like incredibly vague, isn't it? I don't know if he had a vision. I don't know if he had a feeling. I don't know if there was a big angel on the road going, don't go there. Like, I don't know what it was. I have no idea what it was, but it was very clear to Paul that he needed to stop, and his group traveling with him needed to stop and go, what's God doing here? God forbade him from doing what had worked so well, and he was comfortable with, just like God does that for us. Now, there's been a lot written about this, and and, and one scholar said that when we have moments— where we encounter these times, these times when we have patterns in our life or disciplines in our life, things that are working, and then all of a sudden, it seems like the game is changing around us. We usually respond in one of two ways. Some of us get, like, really sad, right? It gets really hard. We get discouraged. It's like, why would you mess with this? It's going so well. Why would things change? Everything's great. Uh, You know, it's working for me. It's working for other people. And it just kind of can get you anxious and dispirited. And that's a very natural response, said that the other way that we often respond when you and I have a closed door in our face that we think should be open is that we might not get anxious or dispirited, that what we do is we get determined to bust through it. I had a mentor in seminary who said of the many, many, many worries and concerns that he had about me, of which there were many, the top of his list was you are somebody that when God closes a door that you think should be open, your first response is to try to kick it down. Right? It's like we're going through there. and These are obstacles. These are obstacles in our way. These may not be of the Lord. We are going through this no matter what. Those are natural responses when doors close, when patterns change, when learned behaviors that have been good quit working. We've got to power through it. we got to discipline ourselves and reinvigorate, or we just get down and anxious and dispirited. What happens in this passage, though, is that Paul is able to avoid either one of those. He's able to pull back and go, okay, what if God's doing something here? That's a really hard and mature question to sit in when things aren't going your way, isn't it? What's God doing here? But it's what Paul's able to do, and it's what you and I need to be positioned to do. Now, how do we do that? How do you and I become people who learn to ask this mature spiritual question when things are difficult? How do you do that? Well, the key is right here in this text. And again, there's a few things, but one of which we're going to talk about that all of us need to know is found right here. It's found in these five verses. And it applies to every single one of our lives. Every one of us. When you study a passage of Scripture like this, there's always a question of how do you do it. I had a professor in seminary that said that the way you study is by looking at the verbs. Verbs of a passage tell you the action. Verbs are what you should focus on. That can be a great way of studying this. But what I want us to do in this passage is I want you to look at the pronouns. There are 11 pronouns in these five verses. Nine of them fall into a certain category. What are they? This is really important. What are the pronouns? What makes them common? They're plural. Nine of the 11, and I know some of you are counting. I think it's 11. If it's 12 or 10, let's not get caught up in that, okay? (laughs) They're plural. They're plural. Guys, this is really important. We live in a culture in the United States of America that values individualism much more highly. Than the Bible does. The Bible thinks communally, where you and I think individually. I know a lot of people, and I've been one of them, who we have this idea of Paul traveling. We have this idea of this kind of rock star Christian who just was this close to God and had the answers and everything else. And this group that travels with him, is sort of like his roadies, right? They just sort of travel around. It's like, Paul, you're so amazing. Can I like carry your bags for you? Or, you know, it's like it's like the Twitter followers of the Kardashians. They've done nothing to make this world a better place, but we just want to know what you think, right? We just kind of want to follow your celebrity and see what it is and all of this other stuff. There's this idea that Paul had the answers. Paul was this superhero of the faith. And these people are just sort of his minions traveling around with him going, Paul, you're so wonderful. That is not, that is an American Western assumption about how celebrity and individualism works many of us suffer with. That is not what the text presents. The text does not present Paul is the answer guy with all of the, the, the spiritual insights and then this group just going, Paul, you're amazing. Tell us what to do next. The pronouns say that we were... Uh, proclaiming this word, that God, the Spirit, prevented us from going in. It says that Paul had a vision uh, of a man from Macedonia saying to come and help us, but if you look, it says that um, we immediately began to cross over, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. It wasn't that Paul had this vision and then woke up and goes, hey guys, we're going to Macedonia." It was that this group heard his vision and they discerned together in community that this is what God was calling them to go and do as a whole. Paul has a group with which he is doing life together with, which he is walking with, who are helping him to process and to discern what it is God's doing. Because, friends, Macedonia is not just another city in Turkey like all the others. Macedonia is in Greece. This is the calling of God for the gospel to explode into a new continent, This isn't about going to this village versus that village. It's about God saying, Paul, I've got a much bigger plan for you than what you can imagine. I've got a much bigger plan for this community than what any of you are thinking about, and so I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to stop the patterns of your life that make so much sense for you to open up a new world. God is going to interrupt your life this year. God is going to interrupt your life not to mess with you, not to make things hard, not to make things painful, not to make things difficult, although at times God interrupting our life is difficult, but he's going to do it to rescue us from too small of an existence. He's going to rescue us from playing it safe all the time and being busy with things that, that, that make us feel good and that we succeed at and keep us entertained. He's rescuing us into a life of significance and purpose. God is going to interrupt your life this year, and if you don't have these kinds of pronouns in your life, the, the who is the us for you, who is it that you learn? What is God doing here? Who can you go to and say, pray with me in this because I have no idea what's going on here. This is hard, and this is dis- disorienting, and pray with me because I don't know. If you are a spiritual lone ranger waiting for God to just give you a word, you're going to wait for a long time and probably just stay frustrated. Because the biblical witness of how we figure out what God's doing in our lives is that we do so in community. Friends, who are you doing life with? Who, is, who knows how to pray for you? Who knows how to speak? In, and when I talk about doing life with people, I want to be really clear, clear. What we're not talking about is who do you go to UT games with? That's not what we're talking about. What we're not talking about is like who do you go fishing with once a year, your old college buddies? Like who do you play golf with? We're not talking about that. Now, those aren't bad things at all. But that's not what I mean. I'm talking about who do you go to when when your life is being disrupted and say, pray with me, talk with me, what do you see, help me to see clearly what's Jesus doing here. That's a unique and distinct kind of friendship. This is an important season because now is when you can get plugged in to those places. Now is a time through covenant groups, through party on the patio next week, through D groups, through Sunday school classes, through senior adult ministry, through all different kinds of ways that you can d- make decisions of how to spend your time to do so in community. We live in a culture that is rampant with individualism. Think of it this way. I, I, do this test with me. I promise you, for most of us, this is going to describe your life. If you are right now in planning mode for the year, most of the things you're thinking about are not about the pronouns of we, us, and ours. They're about I, me, and mine. My family, my kids, my life, My vacations, my schedule, my going to the gym, my menu, my things that I want. We naturally plan our lives so that the individuals are managing and taking care of, and that is all good, but how many of us are are really agonizing right now about who we're going to be doing life with four months from now and how we're making time for them? How many of us are sitting there on our calendars going, Lord, how next February am I disciplined to stay walking with these people in prayer so that I can see what you're doing in my life? Probably not many of us. Probably that's something that we're gonna kind of fill in once the rest of our calendars are set. We don't have these activities at the church so that the ministries of the church benefit. We do it so that you can see Macedonia. We do it so that when God comes in and stirs the waters in your life, that you have the ability to walk with the community and say, help me to see, pray with me in this. What might God be doing here that's opening up a whole new world? I very rarely will say this, but I want you to hear me one last time. I want to promise you something. I want to make you a promise and that is a dangerous thing to do. But I feel confident in doing it. You can plan all you want for what this year in your life, in your work, in your career, in your family is going to look like and I promise you now that curveballs are going to be coming your way that the unexpected will happen. And some of those things, God will be the author of it. God is going to interrupt your daily rhythm for you to see a whole new world of possibilities. But if you're not walking with people, it's mostly just going to result in stress. And an insistence on holding on to a life of going, no, 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 I'm just traveling to this village because this is what I do. If you want to see Macedonia, if you want to see a new world in your marriages, in your friendships, in your life, in our city, in your school, in your neighborhood, if you want to see that, then you must be looking with others. You must be looking with others. You can't prepare for the unknown, but you can be positioned in community to embrace this new world God will bring. Now is the time to choose, to prepare, to get ready for what will come. It's an exciting opportunity if we'll just step towards it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that in the midst of our insistence on a life that works a certain way, on rhythms and disciplines and schedules and control, that you would help us to embrace the idea that you will disorient us this year, that you will disrupt and interrupt to save us from ourselves, to save us from a life that is controlled and safe and sterile, to open us to a new world that we can't even imagine. Help us to see how we can walk with others. Help us to build these patterns of community into our life and into our value systems and into our calendars. May we take this seriously so that we can embrace the new life you have for us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.